Well, today I want to talk to you about something that's, uh, that's very uh, personal to me, but really is universal for all of us. And it has to do with change and coping with change. By the way, speaking of change, I see so many old faces here. I, I don't mean necessarily biologically, but uh, you know, people that I know have been here a long time. And, uh, and I see a lot of new faces too. So there is an indicator, of course, of, of, of change. Two construction workers had taken a lunch break and opened up their lunch boxes. One of them looked inside his box and said, not baloney again. I can't believe it. I hate baloney. This is the third time this week I've had baloney. I can't stand baloney. The other one said, well, why don't you just ask your wife to make you something different? He replied, I don't have a wife. I made these myself. <laughs> Most of the baloney in our lives we put there ourselves. If we ever want, to, want, want life to, to be any different from the same old baloney, we keep serving ourselves, then maybe we just need to change uh, our outlook or we need to break out of our routine and do something else. You know the old definition of insanity, of doing the same thing over and over again and thinking that you're going to come up with a different result. Uh, but that too is kind of just baloney because there are some things that we can change, but there are other things that are really beyond our control. Uh, patterns that are unpredictable. I, finished, I just finished reading uh, a book, 1776, uh, by David McCullough, a historian. It's about uh, the revolution. It's about basically uh, the first year, 1776, the Declaration of Independence, and uh, the mobilization uh, for war, and George Washington called to, to head the troops. And uh, what, what struck me uh, were a few things, actually, in the book. Uh, number one, that we had uh, such a ragged band of, uh, of uh, colonists uh, who were coming up against uh, the British who were so well organized and who really had all the weaponry and uh, had all the master-mindedness. And here we had these farmers and just people without any uniforms. Uh, they were undisciplined. Uh, they couldn't take orders very well. They came and left as they wanted. They were uh, from different colonies, and some of the colonies were willing to send some soldiers and some didn't want to send them. They would just want to keep them at home there uh, to protect their little bailiwick. Uh, and it was uh, really amazing, a real David and Goliath story where uh, ill-equipped army and so few compared to hundreds of ships and flatboats that came across the Atlantic Ocean and uh, the British 
who also had thousands and thousands of mercenaries, Hessians, who also fought with them. And just amazing, in the early part, the Americans were just getting brutalized. They were losing constantly. And so that really struck me. Secondly, what struck me was that a lot of it had to do, as far as the battles and the wars uh, that were fought, a lot of it had to do with the weather. The weather was such a factor. It was just amazing. Uh, when the British sometimes were ready to come ashore with all of, they could, and it was, it was win and lo, it was winter. And it was uh, only a storm, uh, wind, fog, mist that uh, delayed and saved and gave the colonists, uh, the Continental Army, an opportunity uh, to regroup. And then sometimes that same weather actually uh, when Washington crossed the Delaware River, the Delaware, and uh, surreptitiously was able with uh, maybe about uh, two or 3,000 or so men uh, to swing around. And while the, uh, while the Hessians and the others were drunk and, and uh, feeling a great security, uh, it was the fog and the mistiness that really covered them. Weather played such an important factor as well. Then uh, I just finished another book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved by Kate Bowler. Uh, Kate Bowler is a professor at Duke University. She uh, teaches in the Divinity School, uh, <clears throat> and uh, she was living the idyllic life. She was, uh, had uh, a wonderful husband, and she'd been trying for years. They'd been trying to have a child, and it, it wasn't working out, and then the heavens opened, in a sense, and she gave birth, and she was just in such a good place, an easy place, but a wonderful good place doing what she wanted to do, teaching. She was uh, very focused actually on the teachings about the name it and claim it type of, of teaching, the, the very uh, hyper, you know, charismaticism, and uh, she was studying that, and what happened, but she came down with cancer. Stage four, the worst, stage four colon cancer. And her world was totally shattered. It was tremendous uh, change, of course, in her life. Uh, it wasn't her fault. It wasn't anything that, uh, that she did, because change sometimes just happens. Change oftentimes uh, is beyond our control, and consequently, uh, she had to deal with it. Joyce and I are experiencing a lot of change. You've heard some of it, but I want to tell you some good change that's occurred in our life, and that is, at our ripe old age, <laughs> or our ripe age, we now, in a sense, 
uh, our pseudo-parents again. Our 18-year-old granddaughter lives with us, moved from Columbus, Ohio to San Diego, California. Uh, she, it was her idea. She determined that she wanted to come and uh, make a change in her life. And uh, she found uh, uh, a very willing and receptive home in, in, in our house. Uh, it is a pleasure to, to be able to, uh, to have a grandchild and be able to speak into their life and to be able to uh, actually reverse our empty nester uh, position and to, uh, to see the, uh, the ups and the downs and the moodiness uh, oftentimes. But Anya's a wonderful girl, so she's been there for three and a half months. And uh, she's given us a renewed vigor, I would say, a real blessing uh, and an opportunity to at least think that we're making a difference and in speaking in, into her life in a positive way. Today, it's very difficult uh, for kids to know what it was like to use a typewriter, to live in a world where your phone was tethered to a wall, you know, is so foreign to be able to cope. Uh, without digital music in your ear. <clears throat> and I know from Anya, what, what, you know, if we call Anya, what, what, you know, she's got the, you know, earphone. Not only the earphones, you know, they're like wireless, you know, everything is, is like uh, up to date. And uh, other electronic devices, uh, from vinyl to cassette to CDs and now digital stuff, we're changing the world. And the, the, world, the world is changing us as a result. Um, it's so fast-paced, so rapidly accelerated everything. Horses, boats, trains, air travel now. We've cut the time of remoteness of distant places to a fraction. Uh, we've done the same with communication. I mean, consider, I practice law in, in, in Ohio but I live in San Diego. One of the reasons I'm here is for a mediation. I very rarely have to come here in a case. I don't have that many cases, but I very rarely have to come. And uh, that's one of the reasons uh, I, I'm here. And uh, <clears throat> uh, now I don't have a mediation because in the interim, I think it was yesterday, the case settled. That's okay. I have other reasons for being here. Uh, after uh, services and after ONEG, I'll be going to Cincinnati, Ohio for my uh, law school reunion. I won't tell you how many years, but it's, <laughs> it's a significant one. And, uh, but, you know, maybe I'm here for other reasons as well, like the opportunity uh, that I have here uh, to see people and, and to speak. So banking is amazing. You receive a check and deposit it within a minute, remotely, from wherever you are. Uh, my 95-year-old aunt is just like absolutely amazed. Like, what's inside that phone? How is it, you know, getting from here to the bank? It's just like totally mind-blowing. And uh, sending payment to someone is just as speedy electronically through direct deposit, transfer through QuickPay, Zelle, other interbank uh, trans intrabank and interbank electronic systems. 
take any area of our life and we are living in a fast-paced world with all the complications and but all the benefits that it presents consider an old classical story rip van winkle uh, <clears throat> it's set in the years before the american revolution in a village in a foot of new york's catskill mountains where rip van winkle a dutch american villager lives one autumn day van winkle wanders into the mountains with his dog wolf and his gun to escape his wife's nagging. He proceeded to a hollow in which Rip discovers the source of some thunderous noises. A group of ornately dressed, silent, bearded men who are playing nine pins, a type of uh, lawn bowling game. And Van Winkle begins to drink some liquor and he falls asleep and when he awakens on the mountain, he discovers some shocking changes. His musket is rotting and rusty. His beard is a foot long, and his dog is nowhere to be found. He returns to his village where he recognizes no one and has no idea that there's been an American Revolution and that King George III is no more. And yet we have the, uh, the United States of America. Uh, some change had taken place in his life. And he learns that most of his friends were killed in the Revolutionary War. He does find his, his son. And uh, <clears throat> he also realizes that he's been away now from the village for 20 years. His grown daughter takes him in. And he resumes... Uh, a life, which he must do. Washington Irving, the author of Rip Van Winkle, wrote an enduring story that has become a classic probably because it speaks to each and every one of us today. As we wake up from day to day and find that there have been some transformations and changes that have occurred in our life. There are some people here uh, that have been here for a long time, and there are some people that are no longer here that were here for a long time, but have passed on. There are changes, just, just a reality. Uh, it's it's in, the, in the wind. The whole issue of change is magnified in uh, Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, uh, a story about... Uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Gregor Samsa, who wakes up from anxious dreams in one day and discovers in bed he had been changed into a monstrous, verminous bug. And uh, the story goes on about the difficulty that Gregor has of being a bug in, 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 uh, in a... Uh, uh, a place where he had uh, his job, a place where he had friends, and the struggle simply just to roll over from his back, the reaction of uh, seeing uh, his family's reaction to him now. Everything was kind of turned on its head, and it gives you a different look uh, from below or maybe from above. 
I prefer God's metamorphosis of going to sleep as a cocoon and a, and a caterpillar and waking up as a beautiful butterfly. But this was a verminous uh, bug. Toffler, Alvin Toffler, describes the effects of too much change <clears throat> in too short a period of time in uh, his book, Future Shock. At the time, he predicted that people exposed to rapid change in modern life would be future shocked. He maintained that <clears throat> there was a need to constantly adapt to change, and it resulted in distress and anxiety and uncertainty and, and burnout. And in order to cope with it, he said that we need islands of stability. We need some transformative balance uh, to neutralize this disequilibrium that we all confront because of such change. And now I'd say radical change that occurs. We need adjustment skills. We need to maintain a happy existence in spite of the world changing so quickly uh, around us. We do, in fact, have such tools. We as believers, we as in a house, in a community of God in particularly, if we are anchored in the God of this universe, we know that our feet are firmly situated on one who never changes. He is that fixed North Star to whom we can orient ourselves in a way that brings strength and constancy to our existence. The scriptures are that Eitz Chaim. Uh, they are that tree of life that we can take firm hold of and experience a security in a world that, that tends to swallow us in its, in its swells and waylay us in its wake. We can find comfort in the one who said, for I am the Lord, I do not change. Yeshua HaMashiach, the same yesterday, today, and forever. We read in Isaiah and in uh, 1 Peter, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And in Psalm 33, 11, it resounds with hope. It resounds with positivity. His plans endure forever. His purposes last eternally. He's that sewer, that rock, that firm rock, whom we can stand <clears throat> uh, strong and straight, yeshar, without fear, without fear of falling. He is that anchor. There are scriptural examples, of course. We have many who were challenged by change. Consider Joshua. <clears throat> Joshua being the successor to Moses. We are <clears throat> in a movement that is graying, the Messianic Jewish movement. Uh, we are um, moving from a pioneer generation. Some people who have their hair graying, just like the graying of the union. We have a movement in which we are facing the necessity of transferring leadership to a new leadership. And we have that example in Scripture of Moses. Who could possibly, I'm serious, who can take Howard's place? 
Well, it doesn't matter because there's going to come a time when someone, someone will take Howard's place because God is faithful. And uh, who could take Moses' place? You know, everyone would have said the same thing. It's impossible. Moses is, Moses is our lawgiver. He is our leader. Moses is our prophet. Moses is the one that delivered us from bondage. There is nobody that can do what Moses can do. And yet, God raised up <coughs> Joshua. In Joshua 1 through uh, 18, the first 18 verses of the first chapter, we really have the formula for, uh, for uh, succession, for a change from leadership to leadership. In verse 1 and 2, it talks about Joshua who steps forward in response to God's calling. Uh, Joshua didn't exactly volunteer for the job, but he had been adequately prepared to serve because when God calls you to something, he equips you for the call. He doesn't just leave you naked out there, isolated without the tools in your quiver to meet the challenges. He rather has prepared you for it. Whoever is the next congregational leader here, uh, and we've had a few, uh, from me to Michael uh, Rydelnik, to Michael Schiffman, to Howard Silverman, uh, and uh, all all of the congregational leaders here really uh, were essential and instrumental in bringing us all to the place where we are now. And there's a future leader also who will be instrumental, but all of the past has been the school teacher that has been necessary, really, for maturity for all of us. And in verses 3 through 5, well, I said that, that he calls us and equips us and here, times were a-changing. And in 3 through 5, in the midst of change, God gave Joshua the charge. He'll give us the mission. He'll tell us what to do. He won't just say lead, but not tell us where to lead. And so, we see that Joshua uh, is equipped, but he's also given a charge. And uh, Joshua rose to that charge because times were changing. And in verse 6 through 8, God told him to be chazak, strong. And then he interprets that for Joshua, meaning to obey the word of Torah and to turn uh, <coughs> to God, to depend upon him, uh, not just to uh, read it, but to observe it, to meditate on it, and do what is written in it, because times were a-changing. And in verse through verses 9, Joshua had to leave, had to have some sense of, uh, of a great responsibility of the mantle that had fallen upon him. And the changes that were occurring with the death of Moses, a new leader, the task of crossing over the Jordan. Moses took us out, but Joshua took us in. And so we need leaders that take us out, but we also need leaders that open up the waters to bring us in to the newness and the freshness of what God has for us. 
to experience the promised land that is in front of us. And uh, <clears throat> he said, don't be afraid, for I'll be with you wherever I send you, which is where you will go. Times were a changing. And in verse 10, Joshua didn't just go out puffed up on his own, but he was smart enough and had the wisdom enough to prepare the people by giving them notice and informing them that they were going to war and they were going to face the enemy, the antagonist who would seek to keep us from the rightful inheritance in the land of Canaan, who would keep us uh, from experiencing, who would want to deny us of our godly right to be in a particular place, in a particular land, in a particular time, for times were a change. In verse 10, uh, verse uh, 12 through 15, he demonstrated Joshua did equity and fair-mindedness when he honored uh, the Reubenites, the Gadites, the Gadites, and the uh, and half the tribe of of Manasseh, and said, "Okay, uh, you can you can uh, find your homes here on the east side of the Jordan, but you got to come with us and fight with us on the west side, and uh, fight all the ites that were." on the Canaanites that were on the other side, participate uh, in the journey, to participate in the experience together, that we are a, a tribe of brothers, of sisters in this war together that we fight, that times are a change in. And I'm not just talking the physical war, I'm talking about the spiritual war that we fight not against flesh and blood but we fight against spiritual wickedness in high places that's real, that would tend to attack us in our pursuit, our pursuit of uh, God and our place with Him. And finally, notice that they answered Joshua the same way they ultimately had answered Moses. All that you say, we will do. And just like God told him to be strong and courageous, uh, so too the people told Joshua as well. In the midst, and God told Joshua, and there in the midst of change, they were with Joshua. You cannot go where people will not follow, and people will follow the godly leader. Times were changing. Here, was great change, but notice God selected the one to lead in the change. God gives clear instruction as to how to confront the change. God directs attention to His Word to cope with the change. God gives encouragement, assurance, and comfort in the midst of change. Preparation is required for change. Fairness and uprightness is required during change, no less because of the pressure of change. And there will be an assent by others as confirmation of the change. We will say, we will go with you. All that you say, we will do. We will raise your, arm, your arms with you. We will support you. And we will be on the side of you because God is with you. 
the difficulty of coping with change boils down to the fear of uncertainty. Uncertainty due to the loss of the known. Uncertainty as to what is going to happen now. How will I be able to cope in the future? Without my spouse, who's no longer here, within a new environment, like a nursing home, with new employment, a new boss, a longer drive to work, a new fellowship, a new congregation, a new community. How am I going to get along without all of that which I had and which was so familiar to me? It's the loss of familiarity, all of it, etc., ad nauseum. Well, we of all people, of course, find it difficult uh, to, to change. Um, <clears throat> but success is often preceded by change. It's preceded by failure, oftentimes, which we <clears throat> learn and change to be ready for the next opportunity. Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in prison before becoming the first president of South Africa to be elected in a fully representative democratic election. Thomas Edison changed his situation after finding 9,000 ways how a light bulb would not work. J.K. Rowling was penniless, divorced with a dependent child on welfare. Twelve major publishers rejected her Harry Potter book. A thirteenth one, well, you know, the rest is history. Walt Disney was fired from an editor job because he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. <laughs> Elvis Presley was told he couldn't sing. Vincent van Gogh sold one picture while he was alive, died poor. Four of his pictures have been sold for over for $400 million since. Can you imagine? Abraham Lincoln had no formal education, did not have a distinguished military career, lost eight political elections, wound up being president of the United States. Einstein, deemed to be handicapped when he was young, failed an entrance examination to enter Zurich's Polytechnic Institute. You know, the type of guy that today, or person, or woman, or so, that would like have to take the ACT again, you know, because they didn't, they did so poorly. Einstein, right. Uh, he wound up as the Nobel Peace Prize winner, and perhaps, at least in my estimation, and in, in many people, the most brilliant physicist who ever walked this planet. People seem to be naturally resistant to change. You know, the only, the only one that seems to really uh, love change is a wet baby. Uh, <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, it, it's, just, it's just amazing the amount of data coming forth every min minute boggles the Google imagination. 15.2 million texts a minute. Uber takes 45,786 trips each minute. I don't know what Lyft does, but Spotify adds 13 new songs a minute. We tweet 456,000 times. You know, this is pre-Trump, so I don't know how many we tweet now. Post 46,740 Instagram photos, 
Google's 3.6 million searches and publishes 600 new page edits on Wikipedia each minute. The internet copes with 103,447,520 spam emails every minute, and I feel half of them wind up in my spam folder. Uh, really, we just spew enough gigabytes out to just fill, fill probably, well, as many books as Howard has in his library. It's just all of this change brings uncertainty, fear, feelings of uh, spinning out of control. Uh, but and, and, and even in the book of Ecclesiastes, we read about uh, this uh, vapor, vaporous mist of, of, of change. A generation comes, a generation goes, the sun rises, you know, futility, it seems like. And the sun sets, the wind goes around the south and circles back to the north. All the rivers flow into the sea. There's a season for everything. Then there is a real transformation change that makes all the difference. It's the kind that you watch over time when someone repents of their rebellious nature and chooses to partnership with God to do a new thing. Yes, God is the agent for change. There are many ways to cope with change. There are Many, many different ways, but <clears throat> change goes better with God. He is the holy set of shock absorbers that helps in that transformation. I'll do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I, even I, will make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the de desert. You know, he changed the water to wine. When circumstances change, you can't just stay the same. You need to change with the circumstance or you're going to have to just change the circumstances around you, which is often impossible to do. That means you go with the flow. You go with Yeshua wherever He takes you in whatever thicket and challenge He draws you into for your ultimate good. Don't go kicking and screaming. We all have challenges. Sometimes I think for me, uh, life went too smoothly that uh, I had such a, a routine and I knew what it was and I was comfortable in it. And then I was hit with, uh, with my thorn in the flesh and with my challenge. Uh, I guess I could, you know, do a number of things like just give up and uh, just not uh, press forward. And maybe I'd like to do that, but I find that I can't because God has really made a difference in my life. The Word of God is really transformative, that it really does work. Uh, you can ask my wife. I don't walk around saying, woe is me, woe is me. We got to get out of ourselves. And we got to focus on something that is much bigger than ourselves and bigger than our own pain. We have something to offer in this world and in this kingdom. And uh, <clears throat> we need to 
yield to God and let love have its way and to acclimate ourselves to change and use it for good. In conclusion, uh, a little story from David Augsburger's book, Helping People Forgive. He tells this story. During the 1915 massacre of more than a million Armenians by the Turks, a military unit attacked a village, killing all of the adults and children and taking the young women as hostages. An officer led a raid into a home in which he shot the parents, gave the younger daughters to his men, but kept the oldest daughter for himself. After months of captivity and unspeakable abuse and servitude, she escaped. Over the years, she rebuilt her life and took training as a nurse. One night, while on duty in a Turkish hospital, she recognized the face of a desperately ill, comatose patient in intensive care. It was her captor and abuser, the murderer of her parents. He was unconscious and required constant care to survive. A long and difficult convalescence followed with a man too ill to recognize his surroundings. One day as he was much improved, the doctor said to him, you are a very fortunate man. Had it not been for the devotion of this nurse, you would never have made it. You certainly would be dead. The officer looked at the nurse a long time. I've wanted to ask you for days. We've met before, haven't we? Yes, she replied, we have met before. The officer knew instantly who she was and what she meant. Why didn't you kill me when you had the opportunity? Or why didn't you just let me die? Because the nurse replied, I'm a follower of the one who taught, love your enemies. For this nurse, forgiveness was the key that unlocked a divine capacity to forgive her enemy. I would like to report that this man transformed. I can't. But what is so graphic here is that in order to prepare for change and the unknown that lies ahead, like that nurse, we have to be transformed into a loving human being. That's why the world as we know it and in which we proleptically live is changing. It's changing in our world because we are changed. It's changing because we as followers of the Messiah live by new rules. It's changing because God's kingdom is finding a home in hearts and minds. It's changing because we follow the one who said, love your enemies. The real change occurs when someone's journey takes them to the portals of heaven where he walks with Yeshua side by side and experiences his loving animation. Two men were at the pearly gates seeking to enter, and uh, there, of course, was Peter. How many surprises there's going to be to find out that Peter was Jewish, you know? <laughs> All these jokes about Peter in the portal gate, you know, in the pearly gates, and all. The gatekeeper turns out to be Jewish. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. So there's a uh, waiting in line is a taxi cab driver and a, uh, and a Messianic rabbi. And the taxi cab driver uh, is called by name and approaches Peter. And Peter looks in that big book, you know, and looks in there and he says, uh, 
take this golden scepter and the silver robe and enter in. You made it, boy. Taxi cab driver enters the, the, poor, poor, uh, the pearly gates. The Messianic rabbi comes up. Peter's looking through the book. He's, whoo, he sees, you, you just made it. <laughs> he says, uh, take this uh, linen garment and take this wooden staff and enter in. Messianic rabbi, being a Messianic rabbi, he said, wait a minute. Wait a minute, that taxi cab driver got the golden scepter and he got the silver robe and, 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 and what are you giving me? This, this can't stand. This doesn't make any sense. Peter says, up here, results count. When you preached, people slept. When he drove, people prayed. <laughs> it fitted in. <laughs> How true it is. <laughs> well, when life hits you with change, embrace it as a teaching moment from God intended for our growth so that we'll be a better position next time to cope with the next change and maybe we'll be in a position, an empathic one, to be able to help another who's undergoing that change and having greater difficulty. When life hits you then with bologna, take it and make a gourmet fried bologna sandwich on challah with it and move forward in God's love. Shabbat Shalom.